So Naomi and her daughter-in-law Ruth, the Moabites, returned from Moab and arrived at Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Naomi, let me go out to the fields. Maybe someone will be kind enough to let me gather the grain he leaves behind. Go, my daughter. So Ruth went out to the field and began to pick up grain. She worked behind those cutting and gathering the grain. As it turned out, she was working in a field that belonged to Boaz. He was from the family of Elimelech. He was a very rich relative of Naomi's. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the workers. May the Lord be with you. And may the Lord bless you. Who does that young woman belong to? She is the young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters. She's been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes' rest in the shelter. After speaking with his workers, Boaz went to talk to Ruth. Listen, my daughter. Stay here in my field and gather grain for yourself. Do not go to any other person's field. Continue following behind my women workers. Watch to see the fields as they go and follow them. I have warned the young men not to bother you. When you are thirsty, you may go and drink. Take water from the water jugs that the servants have filled. Why have you been so kind to notice me? I am not an Israelite. Yes, I know. And I also know about all the love and kindness you have shown your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you left your father and mother in your own land and have come here to live among strangers. May the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, bless you for it. You are very kind to me, sir. You have said kind words to me, your servant. You have given me hope, and I am not even good enough to be one of your servants. When it was time to take a break for a meal, Boaz again spoke to Ruth. Come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. She sat down with the workers. Then Boaz offered her some grain that had been cooked. She ate all she wanted. She even had some left over. Ruth got up to pick more grain. Let her gather even around the piles of cut grain. Don't tell her to go away. In fact, drop some full heads of grain for her from what you have in your hands and let her gather them. Do not tell her to stop. So Ruth picked up grain in the field until evening. Then she separated the barley from the straw. The barley weighed 30 pounds. She carried it back to town. Her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out the food left over from the lunch Boaz had given her. She gave it to Naomi. Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. May the Lord bless him. The Lord is still being kind to those who are living and those who are dead. That man is a close relative of ours. He's one of our family protectors. Boaz also told me, keep close to my workers until they have finished my whole harvest. That will be good for you, my daughter. Go with the women who work for him. You could be harmed if you go to someone else's field. So Ruth stayed close to the women who worked for Boaz as she picked up grain. She worked until the time when all the barley and wheat had been harvested, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Well, good morning. Happy Father's Day to you fathers out there. And uh, if you're a guest with us this morning, again, welcome. Glad you are here with us. So that was Ruth chapter 2. 
So I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and um, turn with me to Ruth chapter 2. The curtain has closed on scene one of this story and what a sorrowful scene it was. A family that had lost its way. Elimelech takes his family because of the famine that was in Judah and he looks over into pagan Moab and says there's food there, let's go. And uh, he stepped out of the will of God, left the land of blessing, the land of Israel, and he stepped right into the grave. And like father, like son, his two sons, Malan and Killian, uh, they also had disregard for the scriptures, for the Old Testament law. They married Moabite women, and uh, they too suffered tragedy as they lost their lives. They died. And uh, you come to the end of chapter 1, this scene 1, and three widows, Naomi and Orpah and Ruth, um, a very, very sad and tragic thing. Ten years earlier, um, Naomi said, I, I left Judah full. And ten years later, she comes back to Judah, back to Bethlehem, where that was her home, and she says, I have come back empty. Don't call me Naomi, a name that meant pleasant and delightful. Call me bitter. She says there at the end of chapter 1, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The Almighty has afflicted me. My name is not pleasant. My name is Mara Bitter. One of the most loved children's uh, nursery rhymes, you know, the egghead Humpty Dumpty who uh, got his life out of balance, he fell and uh, his life now in shambles and all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put him back together again. Um, and there's Naomi, Humpty Dumpty-like, her life in shambles. Now, Humpty Dumpty is a nursery rhyme, obviously, and not God's word, and I'm glad we have God's word because uh, when all the king's horses and all the king's men can't put our lives that are a shambles together again, we know from Scripture that there's a God in heaven who can. And as scene two, the curtain rises on scene two, you, you get a sense that there's some fresh wind blowing. Something is changing. God has another plan. Look at uh, verse one again. In chapter 2, it says, Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, of, of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, though the book of Ruth is named for Ruth, I think a case could be made that the central character and the key character in this story is this person that we're now introduced to, Boaz. It just kind of comes on the scene. And we, we know that there's something unique and, and the author, the way he inserts verse 1 into the flow of the passage helps us understand that this is a key person. So if you look at the last verse of chapter 1, it said, So Naomi returned with Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Then he jumped right away to verse 2. That's the natural flow. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one who sighted my friend favor. And she said, go, my daughter. 
Um, so the, the flow makes sense from verse 22 of chapter 1. It's the barley harvest in verse 2, so Ruth went out to glean. But that's not what the author does. He inserts this verse 1 in there. Uh, here is Boaz. Um, he is a kinsman of Elimelech, a man of great wealth. His name means strength, Boaz. Who is this guy? And again, it's inserted here for a purpose to cause us to raise our attention. What is going on? What is happening? Let me share a little bit of what we know from chapter 2 about this strange person named Boaz as he comes onto the scene. It says there in verse 1 that he is a man of, my translation says, of great wealth, a man of means. Literally, the, the Hebrew two words that are put together is he is a, uh, a mighty man of valor. A mighty man of valor. It's the very same term that was used in the previous book, the book of Judges, in, in the context of which um, Ruth is written. It was the the time that the judges judged. It's the very same term used of Gideon in uh, Judges chapter 6. You know the story of Gideon. He was a mighty judge. He was a mighty man of valor that was raised up. In chapter 11 of Judges, it's used of another judge, Jephthah, another mighty man of valor. You read those stories and it's like, wow, man, those guys, they knew what they were doing. Gideon, Jephthah, but here, here's this man, Boaz. It's the same word that is used. He was a mighty man of valor. Now, he wasn't a judge. He doesn't appear in the book of Judges. But it, he's almost above the judges. He is a mighty man of great means, but there's something about this man, and he must have had an incredible reputation to be given that title, a mighty man of valor. He's a very spiritual-minded man. You look at verse 4. He comes uh, to his employees. They're the reapers in the field. He comes from Bethlehem, and he, he, he greets them. May Jehovah be with you. May, may he bless you. And they said, may, may Jehovah bless you in return. That's how he greets his employees. He cares for them. He's a spiritual-minded man. May Jehovah bless you. May he, may he be with you. Not only is he spiritually-minded, but we know that he was a respecter of the Old Testament law. He was a law keeper. He cared for the law of God. How do we know that? Well, in the Old Testament law, in the book of Leviticus, there were certain laws laid out called the law um, of, uh, of the gleaning, the gleaning laws. So Leviticus chapter 19, verse 9 and 10 says, Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean, literally strip bare your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am Jehovah God. Now, there are a couple words in the Old Testament that are used for gleanings. One word for gleaning is used when the people who need, the poor people, are gleaning in the field. But there's another word that is used for gleaning when it's applied here in Leviticus of the, of the owner who gleans his own field. And there's always an, an evil negative connotation when you strip bare your land. Don't do it, he says. Don't glean your own harvest. Don't glean, don't strip bare your own fields. 
and I thank Christy Vocal, our kind of resident Old Testament expert, for showing this to me, but uh, that, that word that has a negative connotation is used when the landowner is violating the Old Testament law and is kind of, he, he's sticking his finger into the eye of the poor people. He's stripping it bare, and then it's like he's back behind the scenes kind of chuckling and laughing and saying, you know, there you go, if, if, you, you, you poor people. You're not going to get my food. I, I raised that stuff. But that's not what the word is used of Boaz. Boaz respected the law. He was a spiritual-minded man. And in his fields, and the vast probably wealth that he had, he allowed for the law of gleanings to take place, that, that people in need could go to his field. God provided for that in the law. And Boaz respected that, that they could come and gather food for themselves. By the way, that's God's plan, isn't it? It's kind of the first, uh, uh, I'll work for food thing. It wasn't, I'm going to stay home and I'll get a government handout check. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to work. But it is allowed for poor people to go and glean the fields so that they could have their food. Boaz was a law keeper. Not only was he a law keeper, he was a very caring man. You look down to verse 9. He tells Ruth, let your eyes be on the field which they reap, and you go after those reapers. I have commanded the servants not to touch you. And when you are thirsty, go to the water jars. Drink from what the servants draw. Um, he didn't have to do that. This, this, was, a, this was a pagan woman uh, from Moab. They were arch enemies of the, of the Jews. But he's kind. He's caring. Verse 10, he's gracious. She fell on her face, bowing to the ground, it says, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight, that you should take notice of me? I'm a foreigner. She, Ruth didn't see herself as deserving of anything. I, I'm a recipient of your grace. Why are you doing this? You're so gracious. You've been so kind to me. That was the heart of, of Boaz, a very humble man. Verse 12, he um, acknowledges Ruth's reputation, and he says, May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Who, who does Boaz give the credit to? Uh, now, this is a mighty man of valor. I mean, this is the, you know, the big honcho of Bethlehem of the area, the man of wealth. He could have come there, and there's all his employees and reapers and servants, and then he sees this poor Moabite woman. He could have kind of lorded over her and thrown her a few grains, and there, my daughter, you know, this, uh, you know, uh, aren't I so magnanimous and gracious? And No. He said, you, th your reward is from the Lord. This is from the Lord, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. He wasn't saying you have come to take refuge from me. He saw himself as a tool, an instrument in the hand of Jehovah God. He was caring. He was kind. He was gracious. He was, he was humble. Very generous. He looked down at verse 15. When Ruth rose to glean, Boaz commanded his servants. It says, let her glean even among the sheaves. Don't insult her. Also, you shall purposely pull out from, for her some of the grain from the bundles. Leave it there that she can glean it. Don't rebuke her. I mean, amazing. The, the sheaves that were being harvested, that was, that, was, that was his. He owned that. Take some out and give it to her. Let her, let her glean it. Don't rebuke her. And so it says, she gleaned in the field until evening. She beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. In other words, it was a lot. 
it was surprisingly a lot. It might have been a bushel of barley. They said it was maybe 50 pounds of grain. Totally unusual of a day's gleaning. And she comes back home to her mother-in-law with a bundle of food. According to verse 20, Boaz was also, and this is very important, we'll see this next week, but Naomi says, there's something else about Boaz. He is one of our closest relatives. Um, now, the second key person in this scene, of course, is Ruth, the lowly Moabite widow, but the recipient of Boaz's kindness and grace. Verse 2, the author does not want us to miss or to forget her um, upbringing or her heritage or her roots. This is Ruth, and he puts that emphasis, the Moabitess. The Moabitess. Uh, this was the woman who was destitute, poor, and a foreigner. It's bad enough to be a, a Jew who was a widow and, and in that type of a situation and culture, but she was the Moabitess. They were, again, arch enemies of the Jewish people. She is more than destitute and desperate in a situation. And yet, in this chapter, chapter 2, I think we learn who Ruth really was. Her coming to faith in Yahweh of Israel was not, it, it was not a sham. It was real. It was genuine. When, back in chapter 1, verse 16, when she said to her mother-in-law, um, I'll go where you go. I'll lodge where, the, where you lodge. Your people are going to be my people. Where you die, I'll die. Where you're buried, I'll be buried. I'm with you, Naomi, no matter what comes. And that was real. She meant that. She was devoted, committed, genuinely so. She was the real deal. She says, as they came back from Moab, back into the land of Judah, we, we need food. And you stay home, Naomi. I'm going to take care of you. I'm committed to you. I'll go glean. And it wasn't easy. Hard work. That was what was expected. She was putting herself in a situation, and that, again, in that culture where she could have been abused by the men, the workers. She was a lowly, destitute widow. But I'll do it because I'm committed to you. That's the kind of character that Ruth was. A genuine woman of integrity. You could look down at verse 11. She was very dependent upon the Lord. Boaz, Boaz says to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me. How you left your father, your mother, the land of your birth, came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work. May your wages be full by the God of Israel. Here was a woman who, whose reputation was well known. Someone asked me uh, after one of the services, how long do you think Naomi and Ruth were back in, in, uh, in the Bethlehem area? I, I would have to say it was a matter of days. I mean, they had to eat. They, they didn't have a lot of food that they brought back with them from Moab, maybe some, a, a few lunches, some meals, but it, it was, this was crunch time. And when she comes there in verse 2 and says, uh, Naomi, I've got to go glean. Let me go glean. Uh, she was needing to do that. Perhaps she said in verse 2, 
I'll find favor. I'll find the, the word for grace. But her reputation had gone out, uh, 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 had, had surpassed her. And Boaz knew that. He heard the, the talk in the town. You know, when they had come back and the gossiping and the whispering back in chapter 1, is this, is this really Naomi? I mean, it had been 10 years at least. I can't believe this is Naomi. What's happened? Where's Elimelech? Where's her son? Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. And then there's this, this Moabite woman with her, this young widow. But in a matter of hours, probably within a few days, Ruth's reputation had gone out. Here's a woman who was devoted to her mother-in-law. She left her family? She, she's coming to, to, to the land of her enemies, the, the, the Jewish people? She's, good, she's that devoted? And Boaz is saying, oh, your reputation, I've heard all about you. She was a woman who lived her life in dependence upon God, and everybody knew it. She was also a woman who was very grateful, very humble. Again, verse 10 she fell on her face. Why, why have I found grace, favor in your sight that you would take notice of me? I'm just a foreigner. I'm a nobody. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a destitute widow. Why? why? I, you don't, I don't deserve this. In verse 13, she says, I have found grace, favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me. Indeed, you've spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I'm not like one of your maidservants. I don't deserve this. Grateful and humble, a dependent, a woman of integrity who when she says, I'm going to take care of you, she meant it. This wonderful woman, Ruth. Well, the third character in the, the, this uh, scene two, this story, is of course Naomi, the one who went out full from Bethlehem and 10 years later is coming back empty, the one who was embittered God has done this to me. The Almighty has dealt me a bitter deal. But something about Naomi, as we see here in chapter 2, is that she had not given up. She had not lost heart. There was something expectant in, in her hope. And maybe it was that she was back now in the land of blessing. And she maybe could sense the winds of change were blowing. And when Naomi comes back, and has that, that 50 pounds of, of, of gleaned grain. She says there in, in, in verse 20, May he be blessed of Jehovah, the Lord, who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. And again, Naomi said to her, The man is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. And you can begin to sense this, this new infusion of hope. Naomi hadn't given up on God. She hadn't given up on life. It, it, it just needed some change, and, and Ruth was that change agent, and, and the story of now Boaz coming in, and all of a sudden she can sense, God hasn't given up on you. May he be blessed of Jehovah Lord. And we'll see next week uh, what, uh, what Naomi was really talking about when she was so excited and saying, this guy is our closest, one of our closest relatives. And it's a, you've read Ruth, the book of Ruth. If you haven't, you go ahead and read it ahead of time. But it's a very exciting next chapter uh, and what's going to happen. There's a, actually, though, a fourth key person, the most important person in th this whole unfolding story, this drama that's being 
lived out the scene one, scene two on the stage of life, this real, this real story of real people. He's the playwright writing this story. He's the one behind the scenes. Boaz, Ruth, Naomi, they're, they're the actors on the stage, but the playwright, he's written the script. He's written the story. He's the Jehovah God. And he's actually more than the playwright because he's actually the player on the stage as well as the story is unfolding. Jehovah God, the unseen one who is accomplishing his purposes behind the storyline. You see, if you take your Bibles and look again at verse 3, the author is pointing us to this, this sovereign God who is working behind the scenes. Back in in verse 3, it says that Ruth, after getting permission from Naomi to go glean, departed, went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And then the next phrase says, and she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. If you have an old King James Version, it'll, it'll say something like this. And she happed to light in the field of Boaz. Um, it literally, it, it would read this way. She, she chanced to chance upon the field of Boaz. So the author is trying to make a point here. And it's kind of a point that he's making with a, with a wink and a nod. She just happened. He, you could translate it like, um, uh, in a stroke of good luck, she just happened to come to Boaz's. No, the author is teasing us. He, he knows that this is no chance meeting. This is no random stroke of luck. The playwright was writing behind the scenes the storyline. And the author makes that very clear when we look at the fourth chapter in a couple of weeks to realize there is a sovereign God in heaven who's accomplishing and weaving his storyline and his purpose. Ruth's coming to glean in Boaz's field was nothing less than the providential work of God to accomplish his purposes. That's a difficult concept. When we talk about the, the providence of God, we're referring to the fact that God has a plan for his creation, all of his creation, and he's guiding and he's directing with his wisdom, with his loving wisdom, that plan toward its purposeful fulfillment so that he gets all the glory. A God in heaven who has a divine plan and he's shaping and he's guiding and he's working that plan according to his wise, loving purposes. And he fulfills that plan for his ultimate glory. See, God is not just some spectator in this play he's not standing as as deism would teach that he kind of got all the things going and then he stepped back and watched as it unfold wondering what are they going to do next he's not a spectator on the, the on the stage he's not not biting his fingernails and wondering what are they doing now good night you you did what no, that's not the way God works. He is governing his eternal purposes so that they reach their consummated, determined ends. He's a sovereign God. And though the concept, the word, 
providence might not be found in the scripture the concept sure, certainly is ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 god works all things after the counsel of his will all things after the counsel of his will nothing in god's created order happens outside that will of god or go to the old testament again in the book of proverbs chapter 16 9 the mind of man plans his way but the lord directs his steps or Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Roll the dice, but guess what? It'll never go contrary to God's determined plan. Proverbs 20.24, man's steps are ordained by the Lord. How then can he understand his way? God is providentially overseeing, directing, and guiding his purposeful plan to its consummated end. And nothing nothing thwarts that now the apostle paul in the new testament he comes to the pagan city of athens to the grand uh d debate center of the areopagus oh he sees all these temples to gods and yet there was one temple to an unknown god and he begins to tell him who that unknown god is it's the god who made the world and all things in it since he is lord of heaven and earth and he does not dwell in temples made with hands nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. God's in charge, and he's fulfilling his divine counsel, the counsel of his own will. Daniel chapter 4, back in the Old Testament, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9, remember the former things of old, for I'm God and there's no other I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that have not yet been done, yet saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Indeed, I have spoken it, I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I will also do it. And on and on and on throughout the scriptures. The providential governance of God of his creation. Now that does not remove the fact that mankind is a free moral agent who makes real choices. The Bible does not teach that man is, uh, mankind are puppets uh, being moved about by the grand puppeteer of the sky. It's not there. The Bible teaches that mankind is a free moral agent that makes real choices in that freedom but it is always under and because of the providential oversight of God. You see, the providence of God so combines with human freedom that though God's ways are certain and sure, man's responsibility before that sovereign God is also certain and sure, and it negates blind fatalism or just pure happenstance. Um, we could, uh, we could talk for hours uh, on this topic. It's uh, whole seminary classes are devoted to this, this thing. Um, 
but it's Father's Day, and I, you know, you got to take us out for steaks or something, right? We don't have a lot of time for that. But um, it can be an unsettling topic, but I find it very, very encouraging. Unlike a, a heretical teaching that's oftentimes shared called open theism, that just the people who can't wrestle these two things, and so they have to limit God. That God is limited in his knowledge, and he, he is in heaven in some way waiting to see what mankind's, and then he'll adjust and order his plan accordingly. No, no, that, that's not what happens. Now let's relate this back to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is really about the playwright behind the story writing the script that brings it to its ultimate consummation, which will be, as we see in chapter 4, the birth of the man who was after God's own heart, the great King David, through whom in that lineage would come our Messiah. There's no accidents with God. This was purposeful, providentially planned. The events of our lives, like Naomi and, and Ruth and Boaz, they, these were real people. They were making real, real choices. And Lemelech made a, a real choice in his, in his moral freedom. He made the choice to go to Moab against the will of God. Real people making real personal choices, but they were not, it wasn't just mere happenstance. God was providentially working through the choices that these people were making to fulfill his ultimate accomplished purposes, his sovereign purposes. Now, from man's perspective, Elimelech just happened to decide to go 50 miles to the east to Moab when the famine hit. He just happened to take his wife and two sons along who just happened to meet some Moabite women and they just happened to get married. And um, Ruth just happened after 10 years when Naomi just happened to plan to come back to Judah. Ruth just happened to decide to go with her. And when they got back to Bethlehem, uh, Ruth just happened to decide to go glean in the field. And it just so happened, as luck would have it, she gleaned in Boaz's field, who it just so happened, happened to be a, a wealthy bachelor, who just so happened to come one day from Bethlehem, the very day that Ruth so happened to be gleaning in the field. And it just so happened at that time, the right time, that Ruth was there and he sees her and inquires of her. On the real human level of this drama, Naomi may have been thinking, why, why did we go to Moab in the first place? Ten years wasted. Why did that happen? Why did my sons disobey God and marry Moabite women? Why? Why have these bitter things happened to us? Ruth may have been wondering, why did, why did I leave Moab? You know, my own people, what, that, that, which was familiar to me. Why did I ever decide to go with Naomi? Why, 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 why am I following this God of Israel? Boaz may have been thinking and wondering, you know, I'm not a young guy anymore. Why haven't I ever found a wife? Why, why am I at this stage of, of life? I'm a man of great valor. I'm, I mean, I've got a great reputation. I'm, I'm the most eligible bachelor. Why am I still single? Why? What is the purpose of my life? 
wife. But God was providentially working in and through the choices that these real people were making, real choices to accomplish his providential, purposeful plan for a king to be born. And by the way, maybe you're asking today the same question. Why has this happened to me? Why has this pain entered my life? Why, why did I lose that job? Oh, what, what, what's go- how, how did it come that I ended up in Winchester, Frederick County? <laughs> how in the world? What, how did I end up at that school to graduate with that degree? Or why, why, why did I have that father? A good father that I look at my friends and some of my friends did not have a father even in the home. Why? why? Or maybe it's the opposite for you. Why? And the answer is always and only the providential working of God. Working out his plans even through the real choices that we make. A sovereign plan for our life to accomplish his divine purposes. Unsettling, not if we understand the character of God. If God was some mean, vindictive killjoy, I would be very concerned about him directing my life. But that's not the God of the Bible, as Ruth found out. He is the one under whose wings we can abide and find refuge. Because he is a God who loves, a God of grace, a God of mercy. Remember the story of Joseph? You meant it for evil, he meant it for good. Our own Lord, Jesus, Acts chapter 2, verse 23, it says, he was crucified, put on the cross by the predetermined foreknowledge of God. It was part of God's providential plan. And yet God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Remember Romans chapter 8, verse 28? Let me read that to you as we wrap this up. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose, For you see, those whom he foreknew, he's predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these he predestined, he's called. And these he's called, he's justified. And these whom he's justified, he's glorified. So what shall we say then to these things? And then Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Oh, what a wonderful phrase. Because you see, there's a God in heaven who loves us. He cares for us. He is for us. Who can be against us? What do you mean, who can be against us? A heartless landlord, a a painfully boisterous boss, a a government that uh, is gone wacko, or, you know, a lot can be against us. No, he who did not spare his own son, verse 32, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? For God's the one that justifies. Who is the one who condemns? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died, and yes, was raised, who's at the right hand of God, and he intercedes for us. He's a God of love. He's a God of, of, of compassion. Who will separate us, then, he says, from this love, the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. Yep, those are all bad things written oftentimes into the, into the, 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 the play, the, the script of our life. As it is written, for your sake we're being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? Tell that to the Nigerians last week who were murdered or taken captive, the believers in northwest Nigeria or other places of the world. And yet there is God's word. He is a God of love. And the question is raised. It's on the table. It's one for every one of us to answer. Who is going to separate you from the love of God? In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. And I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Why? Because he is for us. And I want a God like that who is providentially working out the things of my life, allowing me to make my free moral choices. And he uses every one of those choices in his divine plan to accomplish his good purposes in my life. He is actively working out his plan, and he loves me, and he loves you. Unfathomable love. Today's Father's Day. My dad was born in 1917, right in the midst of the Great World War. Dad was overshadowed by his older brother, a brilliant man. My Uncle Jim, during the Depression years, went off to college, went to graduate school, learned a Ph.D. in history and uh, Latin American history, and taught for many years, decades, at Kansas State University in Latin American history. My dad, he was a farmer in Nebraska also a brilliant man. But he found himself in World War II, North Africa, Italy, after which he came back a broken man, a man who physically and, and spiritually and emotionally was a mess. In fact, it was not uncommon for Don Carey to end up every Saturday night in jail having been liquored up pretty well. But my dad just happened to have a cousin who was a pastor who just happened to tell him about Jesus who just happened to lead him to a saving knowledge of that Jesus and my dad just happened to trust the Lord Jesus Christ as a savior and allow him to change his life and one day my dad went out to the central part of Nebraska to buy some cattle that just happened to stay at that pastor that cousin's home while he was on his cattle buying trip, and there was a young woman who just happened to be working with that pastor in the youth ministry there. She was on loan from a Christian ministry organization, a youth ministry, and she just happened to be there that weekend that my dad just happened to show up, and he saw her and fell in love with her, and it just happened to be my mom. The way my dad told it, he said, I went out to central Nebraska to buy a bull, and I came back with a little heifer. And they just happened to have me and my sister, and they just happened to teach us about the Bible. 
and they just happen to point us to Jesus. I just happen to accept it and become a pastor and just happen to move to Winchester 32 years ago and just happen to be pastoring this church. And by the way, you just happen to be here today like me. No. (laughs) There is no happenstance with God. As the author wrote, she just happened to go to Boaz's field, wink and a nod. There's no happenstance with God. He's working out his providential plan for our lives, never violating our free human choices, but always, always accomplishing all things after the counsel of his will because he is God and we're not. He's sovereign and he loves us. And all those providential plans that are being unfolded in your life come from a heart of love. And how do we know that? Because his word tells us so. 1 John chapter 4, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son to the world so that we might live through him. And in this is love. This is love. He sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He loved us, and he loves us still. Do you know this God? I'm telling you this morning, he's working in your life whether you see him or not. He's the playwright who's written the script, and he cares for you. Have you come to that point in your journey, in real lives, in making your real choices, that you've recognized that there's a God in heaven who loves you? If you ever question that, look to the cross. Be mindful that God so loved you, he sent his son to pay for your sins so that you can have an eternal relationship with him forever. Look to the cross and you'll find a God of love who is providentially working out that loving plan. And guess what? It will be accomplished. And one day we'll experience the consummation of that plan. If you know Jesus Christ is your personal savior, we'll enjoy it one day when the heavens will open and the the trumpet will sound and Christ will return and he'll complete his perfect plan for this world. And we'll either be here on earth or we'll be coming with him in the clouds. But it's going to happen because nothing thwarts the counsel of God. Would you bow your head, please? Father, we're grateful that we have an illustration, a story in the Old Testament that teaches this wonderful, (laughs) complicated truth. This truth that, Father, you are working the counsel of your will out. Some way and some reason it took an Elimelech and his sin to go to Moab, a pagan country, to die and have his sons marry Moabite women. Just happened that one of them comes back and is in the Davidic line and ultimately the line of the Messiah. Your ways are past finding out, but one thing is certain, Father, you're a God of love, and that gives us hope. Even in the midst of all the wreckage sometimes of our life, we have the absolute confidence you're not in heaven biting your fingernails and wondering what in the world is going on with Mark Carey or whoever else. You are fulfilling your plans and purposes 
and we're so grateful that you're in charge and we're not. May we worship you. May our life reflect that worship, knowing who you are and what you've accomplished and will be accomplishing. For your glory, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.